magical moment in Australian sport has been achieved by one of our greatest sporting teams. The Australian women's cricket team win their fifth T20 World Cup. To make the progress we made and to fill a stadium, um, 86,000 people to watch that match, that takes a tremendous amount of effort from a tremendous amount of people at all levels of the game. Think back to the amazing women that led a path for me and have supported me and have also played a critical role themselves. Crows win! The Adelaide Crows are the first AFLW Premiers and the admiration of a nation indeed. Well, look, I, I look at my AFLW career, I've coached 14 games and a premiership. Now, I, I don't think that's enough to retire, Tim. So I, I'm no, nowhere near that ceiling yet. I think I've got a lot to offer women's footy. Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Sport Integrity Australia's podcast, Onside, I'm Tim Gavel. On this episode, we'll be joined by Australian cricketing legend Belinda Clark, Premiership winning AFLW coach Beck Goddard and Sport Integrity Australia's Director of Anti-Doping Policy, Chris Butler. Well, each year, Sport Integrity Australia updates its online education course. The annual refresher course, previously known as Level 2, details the anti-doping rules and changes to the World Anti-Doping Code. It now includes information on match fixing, illicit drug use, abuse in sport and corruption. It's written by athletes, for athletes and looks at sport integrity from every angle. Check it out at elearning.sportintegrity.gov.au And Sport Integrity Australia will be closed over the Christmas and New Year holidays from Friday the 25th of December to Monday the 4th of January 2021. However, our testing program will continue to operate. Check out our website for services available over this period at sportintegrity.gov.au. Well, our first guest is former Australian women's cricket captain Belinda Clark. And Belinda holds a number of records, including the most number of appearances as Australian captain, as well as being the first player, male or female, to score a double century in a one-day international. Well, Belinda has recently stepped down from her role at Cricket Australia as the Executive General Manager of Community Cricket, where she's overseen incredible growth. And Belinda joins us now. Belinda, after almost 26 years and beyond, how does it feel to be walking away from a game that's been such a big part of your life? Yeah, it's a little bit surreal, and I think I'll be coming to terms with it over the uh, the next couple of weeks or months, but it feels a little bit like um, ending a playing career where you just... Um, you know that you're going to have some challenges in front of you and you'll have good days and bad days, but definitely, um, you know, a, a great a great place to work, a great sport to work for, and I'm just um, really grateful of the opportunities that I've had. Strange, isn't it? When you're playing and you're captaining the Australian women's side, you're also running the game as the CEO of Australian women's cricket. So that must have been quite a handful, but quite, you know, looking back, uh, quite surreal. Yeah, very, very, um, I suppose, an odd um, situation, but very small organisation at that point. And we had Quentin Bryce, uh, Dame Quentin Bryce at the helm as as president of Women's Cricket Australia. And and she uh, was holding talks with Malcolm Speed about how we might um, integrate 
the operations of both the ACB and Women's Cricket Australia. So I knew going into that role that the purpose, um, the really the, the prime purpose of what I was doing was to, to work through that integration. So it, it was never going to be for too long that um, uh, with the organisation out, out on its own. So it, it was a bit of method in their madness, but um, I was very grateful that I had the opportunity to work through that process. It was fascinating. Quite an incredible career. Um, scorer of the all-time record for the most number of appearances, captain of the Australian team, uh, the first player, male or female, to score a double century in a one-day international, um, highest Australian international run scorer. Uh, quite an, an incredible record that you've had. Uh, what would you regard as the highlight of your career, do you think? I think um, it probably punctuated by World Cups um, and, and they're sort of like the pinnacle piece that you're working towards, particularly in the women's game where we played so much one-day cricket. So the, the victories in 97 and 2005 um, stand out. Um, the loss in 2000 still eats away at me, um, but they that they probably the, the highs, um, getting a team going in the same direction uh, in a foreign country where everyone's sort of trying to win. Um, yeah, really interesting exercise, World Cups, and, and you really can't afford to put too many uh, feet in the wrong spot uh, because, uh, you know, it doesn't come take much to come unstuck. An estimated 80,000 fans crammed in to see Australia reply to New Zealand's 164. And after Joanne Broadbent was caught in the covers for 32, the Aussies accelerated the run rate with Belinda Clark and Michelle Gosky adjusting to the grassy pitch. Their second wicket stand produced a match-winning 71-run partnership. Yes, yeah, so... You look back on that time, uh, 1997, because during that World Cup, you'd scored that double century against Denmark, but you don't regard that as the highlight for you at that World Cup. Uh, look, the, I think the world, the, the victory um, and, you know, the tournament itself was definitely a highlight. Um, I don't think the um, the actual um, innings was, was necessarily a highlight. I mean, it was nice to be um, in the runs, but... Uh, you know, they were a, a fledgling nation and, and I really was just trying to bat for the day. So um, it's it's not a highlight of my um, batting, but the tournament is absolutely a highlight of my playing career. Yes, you scored 52 in the final and you went on to beat New Zealand by five wickets, I think, uh, from memory in that World Cup final. And then you look towards the T20 World Cup final early this year in March. Uh, the game certainly has come a long way, hasn't it? Oh, amazing transformation, really, and it's needed to uh, happen at so many different levels. And just think about, you know, the world game, and then you've got what's happening in Australia, then you've got what's happening locally at state level, and and then you've got, you know, the real local stuff in the community. So, um, to make the progress we made and to fill a stadium, um, eighty six thousand people to watch that match, um, that takes a tremendous amount of effort from a tremendous amount of people at all levels of the game, and it was um, absolutely the highlight of my non-playing career and um, something that I I'll look back on fondly as a, a pinch me moment. Uh, just on your role with Cricket Australia and the development of community cricket, and I guess the emergence of such a huge crowd. And, and the acceptance of the Australian women's cricket side, it, it must have made you incredibly proud just to see how it was accepted by the people of Australia, in fact, right across the world. Oh, it was amazing, um, amazing event. And um, I, I don't know, I, I sort of was sitting there on that day and looking at the faces of all of the past players who were 
invited to attend that, both from around the world. I mean, I was sitting with, um, you know, Claire Connor and Charlotte Edwards um, and then Mark Jennings from an, an Australian perspective, just all of these past players and and just the the jaws that were hitting hitting the floor as um as the crowd rumbled in and the um and the game took off. It was just um it was an amazing, amazing experience. And um I think I'll be just ever grateful that I was able to be there on that day. The aim now, I guess, is to capitalize on on what happened in March. Do you feel as though the the bricks are there to to make it go forward? Absolutely. And I think, uh, I mean, we had a lot of uh, activity set up to go post the World Cup final in March, um, which obviously got impacted by COVID. So there's a lot of girls comps that were due to start post the post the event deliberately to try and, um, you know, capitalise on the interest that was generated. But what we've found is that uh, this season, um, even with the COVID um, experience that we've all had, um, the number of girls playing cricket is um, you know, trending a lot uh, at a much greater rate of what the boys is at the moment. And that's that's really good positive work, which comes from cricket clubs and associations around the country offering girls um, girls competitions. Just having a look here at the registered participation amongst women and girls, uh, growing by 61% to 76,413 uh, Australia-wide. That is quite an incredible increase, isn't it? 61%. Yeah, absolutely. And look, um, we're... We're committed. The, the organisation's been on this path for quite some time, and it's just nice to be getting the results. So, really big focus on putting, um, you know, making sure that girls have got opportunities to go into the Woolworths Cricket Blast program as, as youngsters, as five and six and seven year olds, and and tra- changing the mindsets of mums and dads that that's a really good thing for their young daughters to be doing. Uh, and that's um that's one of the areas we've really focused on, um, as well as getting um, junior girls competitions up and running. So. It, it takes time. Um, if you do it properly, it takes a bit longer than what you'd like, but it's just nice to see those results. Um, the, interestingly, um, the number of women playing at, at a social level, so social comps is also on the rise and, and probably um, just as um, outstanding in terms of its growth as the junior girls. Yes, the rule changes um, have made an enormous impact, haven't they, for juniors? Uh, when it was brought in in 2017, shorter pitches, boundaries brought in, uh, more guaranteed bowling and batting, Um and I guess that encouraged a lot of younger players to stay in the game. Absolutely. And that's what um, the, the evidence is suggesting is that our ability to retain players once they're in the, once they're playing the sport has increased dramatically and, and the, the type of cricket they're playing. So they're getting a go and it's active and it's, um, you know, exciting and, and they're able to try their skills out. That's really important, as is um, really important really important is the coaching they receive and that you get really sensible people providing lots of kids with opportunities to perform and, um, and you know, do it in such a fun way that they want to come back the next year. And, and that's really a key measure in, in sport to see whether or not you're doing a good job is whether the kids come back year on year and, and cricket's seen a, a dramatic growth in, in that over the last two years. Yes, you've always said, haven't you, that um, cricket does change lives, it empowers people, and you played cricket with such great integrity and you've worked hard, haven't you, to, to make sure that integrity is, is pretty much the framework by which people play. Oh, absolutely. I mean, sport, in my view, is a basic human right and in order to keep a, a really fair playing field, you need to make sure that, um, you know, that A, everyone has, a, has an opportunity to play, but B, that you all, you know, abide by the rules of the game and the playing conditions and the laws, et cetera, and, and make it fun and, and interesting and exciting. It's, it's not there for any other purpose than to be um, enjoyed by people. And I don't care whether it's at the Olympic Games or at the local park. 
um, that philosophy holds true and the people that play like that enjoy it and they generally um, become lifelong fans of the game. Is there still a fair way to go, do you think, in women's sport? You know, back when you were playing, not much monetary reward for players had to do it as well as being paid to do another job. Do you think it has come a long way? It obviously has, but does it need to go a lot uh, further? Yeah, it's certainly got it. It's, it's, we've made some terrific um, strides in the last couple of years. There's no doubt about that. And I think the thing that's been interesting is the number of sports that have gone on their journey together. And um, I'd like to think that cricket's been at the, the front of the pack, pulling pulling others with us. But um, there's still a long way to go. And, and um, I think the next generation of young girls hopefully will grow up um, knowing very well from the beginning of their life that sport is an option for them as a profession. It's an option for them as a coach, as a volunteer. And it'll be a totally different perspective than what I perhaps grew up with, where there was only a small number of sports um, where women and girls were were welcomed. And um, my main sport at that point was tennis. And it it was definitely one where I didn't feel um, any difference between what the boys were getting and the girls were getting. But there's a lot of sports that have had to go on that journey. And um, I'm really proud of where we're at, but there's still a long way to go. Yes, what about the leadership in Australian sport? Not many women involved in high performance coaching in Australia and uh, and senior leadership positions. How, how do you break that and how do you make sure that, that women get a fair go? Because you've been talking there about players getting a fair go coming through. What about women in, in leadership roles? Yeah, still, it's still, um, again, a, a challenge. I know, um, you know, sports are making sure that there's, when they're doing recruitment campaigns for senior leadership roles, that, you know, that there's females on them. Um, sometimes you have to go searching for those people to get them in the list, but um, there's certainly opportunities for females to play a role. And um, there's two parts of the equation. The part one part is for the for the um, the women to step forward and and have a a really good um, confident go at the job. And the second is that the organisations are open and um, accommodating for whatever circumstances that that um, that woman might need to to make that job her own. So. I've seen Christina Matthews do that beautifully over in Western Australia. She's been a, a trailblazer and, um, you know, there's others in, in Australia and we just need to keep um, keep that on the uh, on the agenda so that, that um, they do get a go. Yes. How do you feel when, when people talk about your career? I've seen a, a number of comments, including the one made by Greg Chappell inducting you into the Hall of Fame saying that nobody has had a greater impact on women's cricket than you. How do you react to something like that? And the fact that uh, the major medal for the Australian Women's Player of the Year is named after you, what, what is your reaction to, to something like that when people talk about you in that way? Oh, obviously, um, a sense of pride. If uh, if people are thinking that you're contributing, that's, that's um, amazing. Um, but I also, you know, think back to the amazing women that um, led a path for me and have supported me and have also played a critical role themselves. So... I'm always generally very quick to add that there's a batch of people that people generally don't know about that are sitting in the background or, or playing their part who have been equally as um, equally as important and, and had equally big an impact. And um, I, I tend to get the accolades and it makes me a little bit nervous at times because there has been so many people that have contributed to where we are today. Now, you've got a new role. You've left Cricket Australia. Tell us about what, what's planned for the future. Well, I've um, just taken a bit of a, a sort of a, a side road, I suppose, and um, decided to try something different. And, and my ambition is to try and help young girls find, um, you know, the skills, capability and confidence to, to lead in the future. So trying to break the cycle of females in leadership positions a lot earlier than, than what we are. And, and that comes right back to, um, you know, how girls 
um, you know, have, are confident, whether they've got the skills and, and when those opportunities arise, they step into them and they can take the world by storm. But that's uh, that's my passion and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, whilst I've had some impact at cricket, that it's a similar theme um, running through and, and trying to have an impact in the, the lives of young girls into the future. Yes, the business is called the Leadership Playground. What's the reasoning behind... Um playground i guess you sort of think, <laughs> think it's a bit a bit murky out there or uncertain or how, how do you no, describe I, it? it yeah I, the reason i chose uh that word is that i just think there's um a playfulness and an explore exploring that needs to happen in order to um you know to gather some some skills and confidence and you know life's not all serious and leadership can be perceived as very serious but you do need the opportunity to play with it um to experiment to explore it and, and you'll find your way of doing it. So that that's the purpose of um, the, the word playground in in the uh, the title of the business. And why did you identify the, the need to build leadership skills for 10 to 15-year-olds? What was the reasoning behind that? Well, I think they're the formative years where a lot of the, you know, the beliefs are, um, are coming into fruition. There's a lot of social pressure around what's expected of girls or not expected of them. And I think it's just really important that at that age you, you are provided with an alternate view of, how it is that I might, um, you know, be capable of leading, whether that's um, a small group leading a large group, just just to sort of put it back into the, the spotlight and and provide that encouragement to, um, you know, to don't don't just assume that these positions are for someone else, that that you've actually got the capability to do it and do it your way. So is the feeling you give them more responsibility at that age, or you let them dabble a little bit? Oh, I think there's. I mean, there's. A, I've still got a lot of work to do to. Um, to map out how how I'm going to um, make this come to life, but you don't learn by um, listening to someone and then just sitting on information. You do need to experiment with things. So um, it, it will be a um, an active and um, intuitive way of making sure that you you gather the skills as you go through. All right, Belinda, uh, you've had an incredible influence on Australian cricket and it looks as though uh, the next generation of young women coming through are also going to be uh, influenced by your work. Thanks very much for joining us today on Onside. Thanks, Tim. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Welcome back to Onside. I'm Tim Gable. Well, our next guest is Beck Goddard, and Beck coached the Adelaide Crows to the inaugural AFLW Premiership in 2017. She's now the head coach of the Hawthorne VFLW team. It's an all-female coaching panel. And Beck, um, it's a major development in Australian rules. Yeah, look, I think it, it is really significant and it's not <clears throat> just because it's all um, it, it's gendered. I think what, what, what we saw after COVID is that our industry had an opportunity to to change the way that it worked. You know, there's that old Chinese saying, old ways don't open new doors. And I think, you know, we had a real opportunity at Hawthorne to to look at, you know, our space and, and where we existed and and see what we might be able to do uh, differently and not just return to the, to the normal. Um, I think COVID sort of shown us that the AFL is, um, you know, one of the most agile and resilient beasts. Um, so why not really capitalise that? And we've we've been able to open the door to some amazing uh, coaches who happen to be women that just haven't had their chance to to shine yet, and they're going to get that and be able to show their potential at Hawthorne. How significant was it when President uh, of Hawthorne, Jeff Kennett, said the the six coaches earn their positions based on merit? How important was that for you? Well, I, th- I think it is significant, and I don't want to to, to downplay this too much, but 
but we do need, and I think the the whole male champions of change, you know, issue has evolved as the years have gone on. And what matters is when you get overt and brave leadership. So you're not just doing things for for tokenism. You're not doing things for the sake of it. Um, it's not a political statement by Jeff or by the by the football club. Um, they genuinely believe in this initiative. They didn't want to get to the point in five years' time and look back when Hawthorne had an AFLW licence and think, well, what did we do to develop women's coaches? Well, nothing. Or we can do something right now. Um, and I, I do think that that is significant and having the support of, of really influential um, men in the industry helps enormously because we women can keep talking about it and getting frustrated about it as much as we like. But when, when Jeff and... Uh, Justin Reeves, the CEO at Hawthorne, or Dan Napoli, the GM at Hawthorne, and the the male players at Hawthorne come out and say, no, this is really important, then it is important. Still a fair way to go when you have a look at the AFLW. Only one female coach, Peter Searle at St Kilda. In the VFLW, there are five female coaches. So it's pretty obvious there is still a fair way to go, isn't there? 100%. And I think, you know, um, our, our sport, you know, I, I love it so much. There's so much about it. I love, I wouldn't do it if I, if I didn't, but there is a very frustrating issue at, at this level, I think. And it's this idea of merit, you know, um, and what we define as merit in our industry. And the amount of times I, I hear, you know, when I'm in coaching groups, whether that's, whether I've been coaching in the NEFL or whether I've been coaching in the AFLW or the SANFL, um, you know, I hear this rhetoric of, oh, he's a good bloke. What He's an absolute ripping fella. But what does that actually mean? Like, does that mean, oh, he loves to get on the punt? He loves to go out for a beer? Um, he laughs at all my jokes. It's it's about that bias and starting to understand your own biases and looking at not just past performances but also evaluating that potential. And uh, there are so many women that are, are qualified, that have got certificates, that are ready to go to uh, coach and can coach at this level now, but it's at the decision-making level on these panels that are deciding who the coaches are that they're getting blocked because of those biases. Another issue too, of course, is the part-time nature of the competition. So, for instance, have a look at your own position two years at the Adelaide Crows, won the Premiership in 2017, but had to make a decision after that second year whether or not you stay in a part-time position or whether or not you you go back to Canberra for a full-time position um, in the police force. So, obviously, the part-time nature is a detraction, isn't it? Well, look, it is, but there are actually a lot of the AFLW coaches that who who are men that are working full time in football now. So it, it can be done uh, for the right person, it seems. Um, but I think the women, the very few of us that are at that sort of top echelon in in football, um, have had to work other jobs to get there. So they're very qualified in, in what they do, whether they're lawyers, whether they're teachers, whether they're police officers, whatever they might be. Um, so when it comes to making a decision about jumping in full time or not, is uh, their level of value and how they're being valued by that football club um, commensurate with what they're actually doing in the real world? And um, can they contribute and, and, you know, live off this wage uh, compared to, to what might be an offer in the football world for, for the for what their male counterparts have been doing. After you won that premiership in 2017 and, and left Adelaide the following year, you have battled to, to get a coaching position in, in women's football, whether it be the VFLW or the AFLW before Hawthorne came along. So uh, that must be frustrating for you, given you've, you've had success. 
Look, I, I don't know if frustrating, I mean, yeah, there have been moments where I've absolutely been frustrated, but at the same time, I needed to learn um, to to grow in an elite sports environment. And I started to like open myself up to some of the different things and educate myself about what other elite sports do. You know, for example, getting to spend, uh, you know, a season with the Canberra Capitals and the and the WNBL um, in a year that they they won a championship after after a long drought, getting to spend time with Carrie Graff and, you know, so just getting her insights or Heather Garriak in Canberra and, and and just growing with those women at the Institute of Sport doing high-performance coaching, I got to do a lot of things, I suppose, that really um, tested me and helped me with the way that I influence conversations. And so that sort of started me on this next journey of, right, well, what what is next for me in football and uh, should I keep applying for jobs and, and see where I go? And inevitably, well, now I've ended up at Hawthorne. How important as well was it to... to- to be an assistant coach at the Canberra Demons in the men's NEFOR competition in 2018 where I guess you're out of your comfort zone to a fair degree. You had umpired men's football in the past, but to be involved in a coaching position at a NEFOR club, which is, as I say, it's a men's competition, how pivotal was that for you? It was really important for my CV, I think, Tim. Um, you know, I did obviously a season at the Demons with, with Cade Klemke um, and he's a terrific coach. Um, has got real insights to the game. He's a playing coach as well. Uh, but I also, uh, in the NEFL, did a season with the Queenie Tigers before uh, they were ruled out of the NEFL and Chris Rourke at the Ainsley Footy Club and um, just got a real insight at different styles of communication and, you know, where I needed to go to the next level. And I think that got me credibility when it came time for the Crows to look at who they wanted because aside from coaching women's football, I'd also coached men's football and had a, a bit more of uh, in-depth understanding about, you know, modern football setups and, and where I needed to be. It's come a fair way though, hasn't it, women's football? When you have a look <laughs> at those days when you were coaching uh, what the yeah. ACT rep side at Gundagai and you had to put on the oh, headlights, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. it's a, I look back and I laugh at, at some of it. You know, like we had to beg, sometimes we had to beg, um, you know, members of our family to come down and coach game day or or just help out and, and now that we're at a point where, you know, we actually can't, um, women can't find a way in to get coaching jobs, I, I chuckle a little bit and think, well, where, where were these guys back then? I could have really done with their help back then. <laughs> well, you had to convince your father to come along to games or at least pay to go, go along to games, didn't you? I did. Dad's really a bit embarrassed about that story now. Back, you know, this is oh, 15 years ago now. I'll never forget. There's a bit of a gold coin donation, I think, to the Women's League. And I was I was making my debut for the ACT side in the forward pocket and was near the gate down at uh, Ainsley Oval there. And, uh, yeah, the lady shook the tin at Dad and said that'll be a gold coin. And he said, push past her. I'm not paying to see women's football and just uh, walked in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just on that Gundagai story too because you had to put on the headlights because you had the ACT players and Wagga players all playing together in that rep team, uh, mm. no, no lights on the ground, so you had to put the, the car lights on to, to train. Well, it, it, it got worse than that. Um, okay. We got there and there were cows grazing in the corner of the paddock. So the first part of warm-up was uh, shooing the cows off the oval mm-hmm. And then um, as the sun dipped, yeah, we had to uh, rip the cars around and get the headlights on high beam to make it a quality session. Uh, but uh, there also weren't facilities, you know, so the girls were getting changed behind trees and using the bathroom behind a tree. Uh, just really crazy times. And now to find myself out at uh, Waverley on an oval that's a, a golf course with 
all of the players wearing GPS units and a, a fully professional environment is unreal. So where do you see yourself going from here? Obviously, Hawthorne wants to be part of the AFLW. You're, you're coaching the VFLW side, a, an all-female coaching panel there, which is great to see, but surely you'd want to be part of the AFLW, don't you? Well, look, I, I look at my AFLW career. I've coached 14 games and a premiership. Now, I, I don't think that's enough to retire, Tim. You know, I'm not like the, the Ross Lyons or the Mick Malthouse yet, but I look at those premiership coaches and see what they did with their careers after they won, and, and they they took off. So I, I'm no, nowhere near that ceiling yet. I think I've got a lot to offer women's footy. Um, I'm, I'm very reluctant to say that I want to coach in men's football because I think that sort of takes away from the, the bigger issue at the minute, which is a blockage in leadership and um, finding that overt leadership to to get more women involved in coaching. Um, I had advice once from a, a person very high up in football and he said to me, whatever you do, Beck, don't walk into a, an AFL football department and tell them that you want to coach in the men's program because they'll shut the door. Mm. They'll shut the door and you won't go anywhere. Um, so I think it's more for me now, well, um, have I reached my potential? No, I don't think I have. I'm going to keep learning and growing at Hawthorne. Had a great chat um, uh, got a good uh, catch up with Andy Collins at Hawthorne, who's our development uh, manager and senior assistant, so Sam Mitchell uh, this week. Um, Sam's left me a voicemail also. I just think, you know, where's the, where's the ceiling? It, I don't know yet, and I look forward to just keep going on my journey. Well, you have been a trailblazer so far, given what you've done in the game thus far, but obviously still plenty to achieve. Thanks very much for joining us on Onside today, Beck. Thanks for having me. Well, joining us now is Chris Butler, Director of Anti-Doping Policy at Sport Integrity Australia. Well, the revised World Anti-Doping Code will come into practice on the 1st of January 2021. And Chris, uh, firstly, can you tell us what is the World Anti-Doping Code? Probably a good question to start with. Um, the code, as, as we call it, it's a, it's a really important document, actually. It, um, it, it's designed to protect athletes' rights to complete in sort of fair, clean sport. Uh, and it provides rules or tries to provide rules that are harmonised across the globe so that in theory an athlete that is competes in Australia is competing under the same rules and the same obligations as any other athlete from Kenya or South Africa or the UK. Um, so without the, without the code, I guess, the anti-doping effort would be a bit like my kids playing basketball in the backyard and... Any, anything goes, basically. Um, so the rules change from day to day depending on which kid thinks they're winning or not um, and there's no consistency. So what the rules and the code try to do is prevent that. They harmonise the obligations for athletes, support person and other participants uh, across the world. Yes, a bit of structure uh, and, I guess, rules to abide by. How often is the World Anti-Doping Code changed how often uh, do we have it revised? The first one came into place in 2003 and it's been updated every six years since then. So we had a 2009, a 2015 and now we'll have the 2021 code. And I guess coming back to that point before about the harmonisation, it's, it's never perfect because the process involves feedback from hundreds of stakeholders around the globe all putting forward suggestions and comments as to what they would like to see Included, So the Australian Government uh, and Sport Integrity Australia are obviously part of that process, trying to advocate for what 
we think is best. But I understand WADA received sort of over 2,000 suggested comments for changes to the code. So it's a, a big job that will never be perfect, but it's probably why it takes them six years to update it each time. And have they made many changes? They have. Uh, they've made a lot of changes. They go through making minor edits and corrections, but there's probably a few big ones that are key to highlight through this process. Uh, the main one would be a new anti-doping rule violation. So previously the code uh, outlined 10 rule violations, things that athletes or support persons could uh, violate the code for. They've added an 11th uh, and it's, it's around providing protection for people who want to report violations or p report potential violations, whistleblowers, if you like. So it makes it a violation for anybody to uh, threaten or discourage people from bringing forward information. And it's really important because, as we've seen more and more recently, the anti-doping movement relies on people coming forward, providing information. Uh, the biggest cases are often because of whistleblowers. So without this protection, um, we can see and we have seen those types of people be threatened. The substance of abuse change too? Yeah, really important. Um, good news, I think we certainly support it. Uh, substances of abuse refers to uh, substances like cocaine and ecstasy and marijuana, illicit drugs if you like. I guess it was recognised through this process, including in Australia, that quite often athletes were being uh, caught out anti-doping rule, rule violations where they had been using these substances not for performance enhancing properties at all but uh, as part of a you know, a society problem if you like uh, they, they'd used it recreationally so whilst we don't condone the use of illicit drugs at all in an anti-doping sense those substances are only prohibited during competition on competition day if they enhance your performance so this new category of substances of abuse essentially says that if an athlete tests positive to trace amounts of those substances and can prove that they took that substance out of competition a long time before they were competing and can prove that they didn't take it for um, performance enhancing benefits during their event, then the sanction they can receive is reduced down to three months or, or even down to one month if they agree to do some education and rehabilitation. So it's about supporting those athletes through a, um, a society issue rather than slapping them with two years ban uh, in, from a sporting context. Chris, what is meant by out of competition? Good question. Uh, substances can be prohibited either in competition, meaning on game day, and that's a pretty obvious description. Out of competition is everything else. Uh, so if a substance is prohibited out of competition, it's banned at all times. It means you can't have it uh, when you're training, when you're at team camp, when you're on holidays, when you're at home. It means it's banned at all times. So out of competition, the rules are going to change to a certain degree in terms of penalties with out of competition for elicits as opposed to testing positive on game day. Yeah, well, correct. Illicit substances are generally stimulants, so they're not banned at all out of competition. It means that if you were to take that substance, and we again, we don't condone the use of it, but in an anti-doping sense, if you were to take an illicit substance out of competition or during training, it's not prohibited. It doesn't enhance your performance during the competition. Those substances are only banned in competition. 
Given that the code is only revised once every six years, I'd imagine there's a fair process and a lot of consultation takes place before any change is made. Yeah, that's what I referred to earlier. There's you know, over 2,000 comments. There's It started off, it kicked off in 2017, the process to get to the 2021 code. WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, run three rounds of consultation essentially where we go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and everybody has the ability to to, I guess, throw ideas out there. As I said, it's hard to get consensus amongst 200 different nations, but it's a really important task that um, the code tries to achieve that. So the education process is is going to be the next step. You, you deal with sports, you educate them, but the wider community is is part of this whole education process. Yeah, and if we, if we take a step back, it's also one of the changes in the code as well is that they've introduced a new what's called an international standard for education. So that the code sets out the rules and underneath that is a whole series of standards. And they've created a new one for education, which is really important because what it does is highlight the importance of education and Sport Integrity Australia and David Sharp have been really strong on this particular point for a long time now. So it's one of our strengths. But in in up in creating a new international standard and putting that within the code, it it really forces everybody around the world to take it really seriously. And and you're right, the step now is to ensure it's one thing to update the rules, but if you don't tell those who are subject to those rules what the changes are, then you're sort of negligent in your duty. So Sport Integrity Australia has a really big job, has already started previously and will continue now to educate not just athletes but um, support personnel and those working within the sports themselves as well. So it comes into practice 1st of January 2021 worldwide? That's right. Um, Everybody's expected to be compliant uh, on 1 January so that the focus is having the rules in place and the legislation in place and everybody set to go. All right, Chris. Thanks very much for joining us on Onside today. That's Chris Butler, and Chris is the Director of the Anti-Doping Policy at Sport Integrity Australia. Back with more in just a moment. And now for our segment, From Left Field, where we answer a question from the public. Hey guys, my name is Riley. I'm a mid-distance runner from the ACT and a Sport Integrity Australia athlete educator. My question from left field today is, are para-athletes subject to the same anti-doping rules? The question is absolutely yes, para-athletes and their support staff are subject to the exact same anti-doping rule violations as any other athlete. If those athletes do need to take a medication specifically for their disability, they can apply for a therapeutic use exemption. Thanks very much for listening to Onside. From all at Sport Integrity Australia, all the best in 2021. Hopefully it's better than 2020. See you soon. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au, or check out our Clean Sport app.